Hi, welcome to the first full episode of the Performance Observatory podcast, the home of everyday ethnomusicology, where we discuss the music that we make and the music that makes us. So, as I said, today is our f- our first full episode, and so I wanted to talk about origin stories. We all have them, um, the origins of our existence, of our family, our career, our purpose, our passions, and many of us know the origin stories of the various artists that we know and love, particularly people like Johnny Cash, where there was a full-blown mega-hit movie that was made of their autobiography. So if you saw Walk the Line, you, you know the upbringing of Johnny Cash, you know of his drug addiction, you know of his quest for his career as a musician. And all of that really is defining of his origins. Um, But there are central moments in his story, in our stories, that are really at the root of who we are, what we think, and what we want and how we express that. And if I was going to do a deep dive into someone like Johnny Cash, who I must admit, I often do, (laughs) his origins were, were so fundamental in the relationships that he had. If Sadly, not for the abuse of his father and the tragic loss of his brother. I don't know that he would have been able to pull himself out of the family situation that he was in. Um, Granted, military service facilitated that easily, but I don't know that he would have gone that direction without having those vicious pushes uh, to to escape. And, of course, the origins of his musicality rest with his mother and her love of music and and keeping music at at the central focus of her relationship with Johnny. So, then you add on to it his fascination with the radio, with June Carter, and seeing that music and expression were a path out of the existence that he knew and seeing that there were others like him who had musical ability and who had a desire to share a part of themselves and were able to do it successfully. I think without those things, without the loss of his brother, even the sad abuse of of his father, the musical influence of his mother, and the aspirations that he got from his adoration of June Carter on the radio. I don't know that we would have Johnny Cash, the man as we know him. So with that, there's a great quote from... 
Joseph Campbell, the historically brilliant professor from Sarah Lawrence, who just a master with uh, myth, he had a late life experience going to a Grateful Dead show. <laughs> I think he did it just about a year before he passed away um, in 1986. And he said after that experience that, quote, everyone has just lost themselves and everybody else here. And that speaks to the experience of rapture in, in his estimation. And really that is something that live music in particular is certainly capable of creating. And so is our general fandom. It, it creates what he describes as, as rapture and it is rapture, but not in the sense of rapture that kind of lacks a, a touch of reality. The rapture that we experience with music, it definitely has a means of taking us out of ourselves and our experiences and the moments that we're in in that general time, but in an aspirational sense. It gives us the ability to see possibilities beyond what we know from our day to day. And that's really why music can take a hold of us. And particularly at such young ages. So with that, I've already talked about Johnny Cash, but there have been a slew of musician's autobiographies coming out over the last 15, 20 years. And so many of them have been absolutely fantastic and well worth reading. I, at some point we'll have a, a list and recommendation and even do an episode or two on a few of those books. But those books always have as Johnny Cash's did um, and, and what we saw in Walk the Line, they always have the origin stories, the childhood, the influences, the experiences that said you're going in this direction, that said this is what your trajectory is for those individual musicians. And we all have them. So I think that it would be really cool for us to get to know each other by sharing our origin stories, because as fans, they're very important. When we look at why we follow and enjoy the music that we do, gives us some insight as to our own trajectory and looking back at the origins of it lets us see the footpath that we've been on following that trajectory. And it might give us some insight on the twists and turns that might come up 
moving forward. So I'm going to go first and share my origin stories in regards to who I am, what I'm doing, and what led me to this microphone. So with that, I'm going to share with you my origin story as a fan. And it starts long ago and far away in a little tiny dinky town in a little tiny dinky house in that little tiny dinky town. <laughs> um, I was the second of two kids in the 1970s and we literally did just have a, a house and a property that was what we referred to as as big as a postage stamp. Um, I was always that kid that was making up stuff, whether it be stories or songs or plays or whatever. Um, but I also sought out a lot of time by myself. That might not play too much into this, but it just came to mind. My musical story started when I was probably four or five. And I remember being the first one home um, from school because hey, it was kindergarten. We only had half a day. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom. It was the 70s. Please remember that. <clears throat> or maybe not too much. But <laughs> she was home doing her thing. And I would come home and it would be lunch. So she would give me my lunch. I'd do my lunch ritual. And almost always, the one thing I wanted to do was to listen to the two records that we had in my parents' shamefully small record collection. Um, they had a total of six records. Let me just preface it this way. They had a total of six records, and I remember exactly what they are. There was the theme for the Pink Panther. There was the Battle Hymn of the Green Berets. And there were two comedy records by Bill Cosby. Please don't judge me. They were brilliant. It was the 70s. It was before he became, or before we knew, what was in his behavior. And my favorite two records were the ones that we had by the singer-songwriter Jim Croce. I was obsessed with those two albums. I would play them constantly. And it's not that I was just playing them. It wasn't, you know, me playing and coloring and they were just in the background. It was playing them full tilt, dancing all around the house, screaming and singing at the top of my lungs, dancing all over the place, deciding to get up on the sofa, the chair, going up onto the uh, staircase and, you know, belting it out from the, um, what are they called? I forget what they're called. Um, landing. The landing of the stairs. And just really just dancing around, keeping these words al alive and vibrant in the air and seeing in my mind's eye, these characters and 
these settings that Jim Croce created. And I remember so distinctly having it in my little head that all I wanted was to see him play one song. I just wanted to experience the physical music, the playing of his music washing over me. From reading the liner notes, and yes, even in kindergarten, I could read liner notes. It was the 70s. It's how we rolled. But I remember reading the liner notes and realizing that he lived in the same county here in Pennsylvania that we did. I had it in my head that my father, who preceded GPS by a number of decades, I knew my father could find his little farmhouse, Jim Croce's little farmhouse. And I asked him to many, 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 many times. And I knew if I just knocked on his door, introduced myself, explained to him that I'm a huge fan and I know I'm too young to go to any of the coffee houses. I'm too young to go to any of the bars. I'm too young to go to any of the concerts that he might have in the area. And then admittedly, my parents would not take me. But I knew if I explained all that to him, then he would happily sit down on his porch and strung out, strum out, <laughs> Freudian slip, drum out one song just for me and let me go away happy. Just knowing that I had heard him play one song in the flesh. And every time I begged my father for this, he was perplexed and he would backpedal and he'd be like, he doesn't want some kid knocking on his door. Well, plenty of time went by a number of years. And I went into the kitchen one afternoon while mom was doing the mom thing and, and making dinner. Remember, it was the 70s. And I asked her, just flat out, knowing that, you know, I wasn't going to go see him perform. And I said, Mom, when are we going to get another Jim Croce record? I need another Jim Croce record. And I remember her stopping what she was doing turning to me and saying, honey, there's not going to be another Jim Croce record. He died. I was gobsmacked. I didn't know what gobsmacked was at that time, but I was gobsmacked. I was like, humana, 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 huh? What? He had died. Years before that, and my family never told me. They, of course, didn't say, hey, our, our little girl is a big fan of this guy. We should maybe say that he died. It wasn't really in their frontal lobe to keep that in mind as they're working and putting us through school and taking us to doctor's appointments and such. But for me, it was like, how could you not tell me? <laughs> this is important information. So I kind of was a little taken aback. Again, didn't know what taken aback was at, you know, the age of, you know, six or seven, but that's what I was. 
And I went back to just spending time with the two albums that I did have. And I continued on that line for years. And all the while, I had older friends who were high school age. They were a good 10, 15 years older than me. So they were always listening to different music. And they introduced me to everything because I was that little kid that was always trailing behind them and just hanging out while they were doing their teenage stuff and being that annoying little one. So I heard everything. I, I heard... Um, Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin and Aerosmith and the Stones and everything coming up in the 70s and, and the early 80s. And then as I transitioned into those teen years, I started finding out what people were listening to and increasing my listening and turn, tuning into different radio stations to see what everybody was listening to and I came across, <laughs> just by accident, um, somehow I found out that the one boy I had a crush on in grade school was a huge Van Halen fan. He was learning guitar and, and he was all up about Eddie Van Halen and I didn't know offhand anything about Van Halen, even though turns out I know a lot of Van Halen, but I went and I got my first album that I purchased with my own money, my own intent was Van Halen's Diver Down album. Not their best, but you know, not a too shabby introduction to my musical genre of uh, choice. And I, I just absorbed that album the same way I did the Jim Croce albums. And that just became my routine just buying albums, absorbing them, just literally sitting on my bedroom floor, minor notes in hand, playing the record, side one, song one, through side two, song whatever it would have been, and just doing that over and over and over for hours. There's no real secret as to why I was not a really great student, but I know myself some liner notes, some song lyrics, and a lot of popular music history firsthand. <laughs> but Van Halen also ended up being my first concert experience, and it was fantastic. We were in the best seats that I never knew I always wanted to sit in. <laughs> we, we were actually side stage at the Philadelphia Spectrum. Long live the Spectrum! And we were only about 10, 12 rows up. And I, I remember we were in Section J, back when the sections were by the letter of the alphabet, and we were in Row J. Very easy to remember since, you know, J's my first initial. <laughs> And we were right there at the, the side of the stage um, where Michael Anthony would play. And it was fantastic for, for me specifically because I was close. And the, the power of the amplification just came and picked me up like a 
giant hairy monster and shook my entire body about. I, I never before then had actually felt where my sternum was. But once the amplifier started, I'm like, oh crap, that's a sternum. That's my sternum. <laughs> I can feel my rib cage right now. And it, it was fantastic because we were at the side of the stage. So the band was up close and I could glimpse to the back of the stage area and see what the techs and the roadies were doing along the side. And I could see the expressions and the gestures and the experience of the people across from me and at the front of the stage. I had a 360 degree experience at my first concert. I could see my, my peers, my cohorts feeling the same way that I did. I could see my quote unquote heroes doing what they do and in, inspiring us all and, and letting us feel this rapture that Joseph Campbell talked about after his experience with the dead. And I could see the business side of things going on. I, I could see the wheels of the, the monster that was Van Halen turning as the, the crew did their work. Basically I, I could see the entirety of the iceberg that is the concert experience and it's stuck with me. And I had already started working and I just kept working more. And from then on, just a few weeks later, I got my driver's license and I was going to shows. I worked to go to shows. I worked to go to shows. And that's what I did all through high school. And I knew at some point that I could only continue to do that. <laughs> If I got a job in the business because there was no way I could work any other kind of job and still be able to see shows that much as I got older. And so after a few years and a few life experiences, that's what I did. I transitioned into working at venues. Uh, the fantastic, the marvelous, the historical, the legendary Man Music Center, uh, now the Man Center for the Performing Arts, but back then it was the Man Center in uh, Philadelphia, Fan Man Park, beautiful historic building. If you can ever get there, go, go to the Man. It is just fantastic. You, you can feel the energy of generations of performers that have um, performed on that stage. It's, it's just tremendous. And then I ended up going over to Camden, New Jersey to work um, at what is now in 2021, the BB&T Center, which I think is the 87th sponsorship name on that building. 
I could be wrong. It could be 88. Um, <laughs> basically, the name keeps changing, in case you didn't get that reference. But that ended up being the trajectory of my career because of my passion and, and my joy, my rapture that I experienced with listening to music. And <laughs> after doing that for a few years, I ended up finally going back to college because um, I, I skipped it <laughs> right after high school. And I was an adult and I had my career and I ended up falling into a major uh, and a program that would really let me get away with anything I wanted. <laughs> Sorry, kids. It was fun. Um, but it introduced me to different perspectives that I could have on the experience that I had had my whole life. I finally started to understand where the rapture came from. And I started to understand where my obsession and my joy came from and why it was and is so central to my truth that I'm a part of the music industry, that I'm a part of music being shared. So that there would be my musical origins, my origins of fandom, my origins of my career, and the origins that brought about this podcast. Because there's, there's not a lot of ways that you can tie fandom, the music industry, and ethnomusicology all together um, in this world at this point. But who knows? Maybe the Performance Observatory can change that. So, um, yeah, so that's our first episode. I hope you found it rather entertaining, interesting, and maybe, hopefully, let's see if it made you think a little bit about your origin stories as far as your musical fandom goes. So think about that. What was your first experience with music? What was your first experience with live music? And what influences it had on you moving forward? If you can look back at those origins, has it had a little tiny hand been maybe the rudder that moves you to different decisions? Let me know. Check out the comments section and let me know what your origin stories are and if you think that they have just a little tiny hand in the decisions that you make, the life that you've led, and who knows? Maybe you might want to see if you want to employ that as part of your decision-making process. I know I don't really have a choice in doing that. So thanks so much for tuning in to our very first episode for the Performance Observatory podcast. We are, as I said, the home of everyday ethnomusicology. We're going to be discussing the music that we make and the music that makes us. So please check out our next episode coming up, which is going to be thanks to Stuart Copeland of The Police. I found an interesting quote from him um, from the Drum Channel, and we're going to discuss that where he talks about the two types of musicians. So.
Tune in for that one next time, and we'll look to see you again here at the Performance Observatory.